Well, friends, today we are finishing off this, uh, this series called Beyond You. It's all about living a life that lives beyond you, about having an impact in the world and making a difference in the world and living out God's call in our lives beyond us. And as we end this and wrap up this series, um, uh, we do so remembering that the, that the Ark of Nehemiah is one that starts, uh, that starts with Nehemiah living in Persia, living with the king, whose job it is to literally eat the steak and drink the wine of the king. But then, but then remember, he has his heart broken for something that's happening 800 miles away in Jerusalem, a place that's more or less obscure to most of the Persian people that he's hanging out with. And his heart breaks for this place. And over the course of months, he develops his plan to put his passion to work. And he goes there and he takes his inventory of, of how they got there and what they need to continue. And, and as they, they get there, they put this wall together against all this opposition and this headwinds of, remember, Sanbal and Tobiah and Geshem. And, and throughout all of this, we saw God raise up the city fortification, raise up rebuilding the city of Jerusalem in only 52 days. I mean, it is an incredible story. It's an incredible story that we're going to see Nehemiah called away from for just a moment. We're going to see Nehemiah called away from for, for maybe a year or two that turns into 10 or even 12. And we're going to see this morning what happens to the city of Jerusalem in Nehemiah's absence. But as a way of writing all of us into the story and kind of getting us all on the same page, I want to ask this question together. Is there, is there something in your life that if left unattended, even just for a moment, like, like everything would come crashing apart? Like it does not take care of itself. And some of you are thinking, yes, those little ones, they do not take care of themselves. If left unattended, even for a moment, my four and six-year-old, totally hypothetical, in the other room will just completely melt and, and fall apart, right? It's, it's not when, when you can hear them that you should worry about. It, it's not when they're laughing or, or, or playing or really even crying or screaming. It's when you can't hear them that you know that everything is bad, everything is out of control. Because when you can't hear them, you realize they may have found the, the bucket of Sharpies and they see the living room wall as their blank canvas to leave their mark on. And you're like, if I leave them alone for just a moment, everything is gonna come crashing down. They may have found water. And then it's like, this is, the whole thing is over, right? Just disaster. Is there something in your life that left completely unattended? Like it would just come crashing down. Some of you are like fitness, diet, exercise buffs. Someday I want to join your ranks. I really admire that. That would be terrific at this point, kind of an aspirational value, but we'll get there. Um, and some of you know that, that, if, that if you spend maybe a day or a week just taking a foot off the gas for just a moment, like it all sort of comes crashing down, right? One cheat night and it's like the next day. Everything, everything for months has been totally undone and you're back to, back to square one. What is that thing that just comes falling apart? You see, some of you, some of us, have believed a lie that culture told us. I believe the lie that, that, that we fall into love. And we fall into love, and so if we, if we fall into it, it's as easy as, well, really not paying any attention at all. And so we just kind of back away for a little bit. And it's only after backing away, taking our foot off the gas for just a moment, that stepping back into it and re-engaging, going, this is not the relationship that I had when I, when I mentally checked out or emotionally checked out. It doesn't just happen automatically. Take your foot off the gas just for a moment and like everything comes crashing down. 
So many areas of life are like that. And as we're going to open up and we're going to hear the story of Nehemiah, I just want to encourage you to consider the fact that your spiritual life may not be any different. That if you take your foot off the gas, even just for a moment, it's like we totally just veer and wander away from God. We cannot put this thing on autopilot. We can't just game the system and keep it moving. Take your foot off the gas and it all dissolves. It all melts right ahead of us. Point in case is the Nehemiah story right? When we left off, they had just finished the finished building, the city fortification, the gates, the wall all around, 52 days for an impossible task. I mean, it is a high point in the story. It's just, it's so incredible the way chapter six ends. And as the story continues in Nehemiah, we see that, that it just seems to get better and better and better. In fact, embedded within, towards the end of the, end of the book, we, we see the whole people, everybody gathered together in this like massive communal worshiping experience, gathered before God, celebrating his goodness and celebrating his faithfulness. And they do something at that point that's really, really important. Outside of recognizing all the exiles that came and settled more or less unsuccessfully 70 years prior, uh, uh, prior to this story, outside of like all of this, they do something really, really important, which was they gather together and they acknowledge their disobedience together, right? They, they have this moment where they, where they communally and all together acknowledge that there are certain ways that they have contributed to the state of, of disaster or the state of helplessness that they had found themselves previous to Nehemiah coming in. They have this time, this season, you could call it, of corporate confession, where they all together as, as a city, but more important than as a people or as a family, a very big extended family, gather together and they say in one voice, never again. We will never repeat the mistakes of the past. Our future is going to be different than the past. Never again. But Nehemiah wasn't there for that. Because while all this is happening, the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, taps him on the shoulder. And we find out this little line from way back in chapter one that we just sort of glossed over at the beginning of this series, that his, that his leave was a temporary one that he was allowed to go back to Jerusalem. He was allowed to supervise the reconstruction of the city. He was allowed to set all of this up. He was even allowed to spend one term, whole term as governor. But from day one, there was an expiration date on it and that date had come. And now he goes back and he's waiting in the city of Babylon in Persia, working for King Artaxerxes. And he's watching everything that happens happen from a distance. We're going to pick it up in chapter 13. It's the last chapter in the story. There's Bibles under the chairs in front of you. There's also going to be words on the screen behind me. Chapter 13, we're going to pick it up in verse 6 where it says, okay, now while all of this was going on, right, all of this communal celebration, this never again language of the people, while all this was happening, I, Nehemiah is writing this, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, see, I returned to the king. And then sometime later, I summoned up the strength, right, the plan and the passion to yet again, sometime later, I asked his permission, the king's permission, and came back to Jerusalem. He's coming back. I mean, it's not like his home, but it, but it sort of feels, again, like a homecoming because, because of how much his heart longs to be there, of how much he, he longs to be there. 
You see, I don't know if he got these messages, kind of this is what the state of things are and this is how things are going. We really have no indication of how well he knew what was happening in Jerusalem. But you know, based on what happened previous in the story, that his heart just breaks for the city of Jerusalem. Like that's his, that's his passion zone. That's what he stays up at night praying for. That's what he cares so deeply about. And he summons up the plan and the passion to once again ask the king for some time off so he could go back he could go back home and, and visit the city that he so badly loves. And the question that's lingering in everybody's mind is what's he going to find when he gets there? See, everybody wants to know how are things going to be in that city in Jerusalem? Like, are, are they going to repeat the mistakes of the past? Or are they going to forge a new way? Are they going to be obedient, maybe for the first time in, in Israel's history? Are they going to follow after God, even when they don't have a hero rallying them around to do so? And I just want to give you a spoiler, and I just want to say it doesn't end well. You see, if things have ended on chapter 12, this would have been one of the most remarkable stories of heroism in the face of, of obstacles. If things would have ended in chapter 12, you'd probably see Disney movies about Nehemiah and his, his courage against Sad Ballad and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab, like all these opposition forces. And you'd probably watch movies about this whole thing. You'd probably like celebrate what God was doing through Nehemiah. But it doesn't end at chapter 12. It ends at chapter 13, and 13 is like the passage, is the, is the book of the Bible where this entire movement of Nehemiah and God comes crashing to a halt. And it just ends, ends in this sad moment of loss and tragedy. But, but then it's through the loss and tragedy that God does something even more incredible. So let's listen to the story. He comes back to Jerusalem. And then in verse 10, we're going to see him see something and do something. In verse 10, uh, I also learned, now there's a number of them. We only picked out three of them. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites, he's getting kind of technical here, but stick with it. The portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. It's kind of a, like a technical point that he finds, that he makes this observation that he's going to act on. Uh, but, but it's an important one because it was the job of the Levites in that time to like rally everybody else around the things of God, to, to remind them of God's presence in their lives. In fact, in those times, the, the Levites, everybody in, everybody in Israel had to live within 10 miles of a Levitical town because the, because the way that the law was scripted up was that everybody needed to have the, I'm going to call it the Levite presence in their life. Somebody of God speaking the things of God, the words of God into their life. And now people, people have wholesale just stopped. It's not like they rejected it. They just slept in, right? They just like quit calling, quit texting, quit emailing. And then we see like this decline start to happen or this, or this just kind of wandering away starts to happen. Not all of a sudden and, Levi, or, uh, and Nehemiah sees that and it just, it breaks his heart. And at this point, I want us to be able to at least read some of our stories into this story and say, like, how, how many of you have, no show of hands, right? But how many of you have that, like, that Levite presence 
in your life. Like, like the person who calls you uh, into, the, into the presence of God or, or the person, the Levite presence in your life that speaks the words of God into your life or the Levite presence that, that maybe offers the things of God into your life. Like how many, you know, you have that Levite present, that person in your life that, that you don't always love what they have to say, but at least you know that what they have to say is true and it's ultimately going to be helpful and it's gonna point you in the direction of God. If you have that person in your life, then this story is one where you stop texting them or stop calling them, you stop reaching out to them. Because after all, questions you know the answers to, you don't need to ask, right? And so you know if your Levite presence person in your life is going to tell you, I don't think you should go there. I don't think you should date him. I don't think you should spend your money that way. You know what they're going to say. And then this story is one about just backing off and saying, you know what, I'm just, I think I'm done. I think I'm done. Leave, or, uh, Nehemiah, he makes the observation about the Levites just sort of like taking, fading out, taking second, third jobs, working in their field somewhere. He's making an observation and he's going to make an action. That's important to realize that this passage in chapter 13, it has a certain cadence, a certain rhythm to it. Observation, action, observation, action. What's important for us to realize in the passage, I think, is this balance that Nehemiah has between observation and action. It's an important balance to keep because some of us are like real observation people and others of us might be action people, right? Some of us love to, love to watch, love to make a plan, love to study, love to research, and then watch and then plan and make a study and then research, right? Like again and again. And other people are like, what? Go. <laughs> just, just go for it. Ready, fire, aim. Just like action, action, action. I don't need to observe anything. I think I got the gist of it. Just like put me in, coach. I'm ready to do this thing. And Nehemiah, we're going to see this cadence of observing, action, watching, doing. And he notices this thing about the, the Levitical presence, the people who are his job it is to call people into the relationship of God, just fading out. He makes an observation and then he does some action. He says this in verse 11. So, I rebuked the officials and asked them, hey, um, why is the house of God neglected? And, and then I called them together and, and stationed them at their posts. He's like, listen, if you're going to act like children, I'm going to treat you like children. And children need a babysitter. I'm not going to put the six-year-old in, front of the four, in charge of the four-year-old. The house will burn down in flood mysteriously at the same time. So what we're going to do, Nehemiah steps in and says, you stand here and you stand here and I'm going to stand over here and just watch and babysit you because apparently that's what you need. So I just want us to see he makes an observation and then he carries out an action sees something, does something. And as each level here, it's going to ramp up in intensity. So next line in verse 15, we'll pick it up and it says, okay, another observation. In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine and grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem. Again, he goes, on the Sabbath. 
Now, that seems kind of obscure to us to think, why does he care so much? Like, you know, the transportation industry bringing supplies in is a a seven-day-a-week process. Like, like, what's the big deal? Why why does he care about this so much? Well, one of the commentators writing about this passage, I love what he said. He said, he said, the observance of the Sabbath, so taking one day off in every seven, is one of the most, quote, distinguishing factors of the Israelite people in the ancient world. In fact, we we can see the archaeological evidence from all over uh, pointing to this practice, not just, by the way, within the nation of Israel or within the Bible. No, no, I'm talking about stuff way outside of that. Lots of Greek writings, like writing about these mysterious Jewish people and saying, it's so strange. Well, like one of the most peculiar thing about them is like, Every six days, then they take one off, and it's like their week starts again. Like, seriously, one-seventh of the time, they're like just not doing anything. It's the strangest thing. Uh, the same commentator, he, he went on to say, you know what it is? He said, it's, it's this appreciation, not just as a distinguishing factor to set them apart from everybody, but, it, but it's this appreciation that their value is derived more in terms of who they are than what they do, right? Which is, which is rare in the ancient world and something that I know we couldn't relate to at all today, right? Because I think some of you need to be reminded, we all need to be reminded that your value isn't determined by the work that you do or the things that you produce or the people that you serve. Your value is as a creation of God. Your value is derived by being an image bearer of God. You are the image of God walking around. That is your primary source of value, not in the work that you do. Taking a step back and spending some time doing nothing, it could be infuriating, but at the same time, it serves as a concrete illustration to each one of us and everybody around us that our value is derived not in what we do, but who we are. But you see the tension here, the tension here is that Nehemiah observed is that people just don't care about that. Like I, I just, don't, I don't even care. I don't want to be any different than any of my neighbors. I don't want to have this distinguishing factor. I don't, I don't want to be more than simply the, the sum of the work that I do. I don't want to, to have value outside of how I spend my time. I don't want to have this in here. I don't want to be any different than any of my other neighbors around me. And this, that's what hits Nehemiah that when he gets back to Jerusalem and he spent so long pouring into these people, he gave up a job where, again, he literally ate steak and drank wine next to the king. That's what he gave up because of his heartbreak for this city and these people. And he risked his life again and again and again on top of that wall. He put everything on the line so many times. And now when he steps back and he comes back, he comes back to the resounding sound of the people saying, we don't care about the lessons of the past. We don't want to be any different. We don't want to be unique. We don't even want to be gods. And I think it's breaking Nehemiah's heart again in a new way. But he doesn't just make the observation. He's also a person of action. He observes, and this is what he does. Uh, he, 
Therefore, he writes, I warned them against selling food on that day. Couple things. When he says that he warned them, he did a little bit more than warn them. Remember, there's Bibles under the chair. You can take those home, read the rest of the story that I'm kind of filling out because we're like keeping it PG for the kiddos around you. Listen, when he warns the people, he warns them under the threat of bodily harm. Like this is how much he cares about reminding the people that they are unique and they are precious children of God. You just, if you don't believe that, just stick around and find out what happens, right? Like that's how much he cares so much that he warns them and even more than that. But it also says that he warned them against selling, help me out here, selling food. Yeah, just like that's it, just food. Remember the previous list where it went like on and on in great detail about just what that food was, right? And Nehemiah is talking about, you know, there was grain and there was wine and there was grapes and there's figs and there's fish. And there's like all this amazing stuff that's carted in. And Nehemiah boils it down. He just simply said, don't sell food on that day. What's probably going on is Nehemiah, Nehemiah is like bringing the attention, not to like all the different stuff, but, but by just using that simple word food, he's recalling the lessons learned, the season of the desert experience way back Moses, when they're wandering around, out of Egypt, they're wandering around the desert. And they're wandering around the desert and every day they get out, they wake up, they walk out of their tents and they see on the ground food, just food. I mean, it, it looked kind of like cracker dust that you could eat. It wasn't, it, it, it couldn't hold a candle to wine and grapes and figs and fish and grain. It, it, it didn't hold a candle to all of that, but it's just food. And then twice the day ahead of the Sabbath. So they didn't have to do anything because it was a reminder to them God would provide. God would provide. And now they're in a season of saying, I, I want so much. I, I want the grapes. I want the wine. I want the figs. I want the fish. And Nehemiah is there saying, have you forgotten? Have you forgotten that God will provide? God will provide. Now the response is, he may not provide in the way that I want. So, so I'm going to work a little extra hard and I'm going to get it. And Nehemiah is going, no, no. He will provide. Do you believe him? He will provide. But, but he might not provide the things that I want in the way that I want. And Nehemiah is saying, don't forget, God will provide. He, he might not provide. So, so I think I'm going I'm to go to wine to help me. And God will provide. God will provide every time. He observes something and he does something. He says something and he does something. And then he gets to the, to the big one. At the very, the last one is the biggest of all of them. Listen to what it says. It says, uh, verse 23. Uh, Moreover, in those days, again, an observation, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Now, this, this is gonna get weird, all right? So just like sit back and realize it's weirder for me than it is for you. But I'm just gonna say this anyway, okay? That sometimes like I hear comments or like people kind of give a look or, or something that might suggest that people kind of interpret this as God, God's will is against people from different areas, like being together in marriage. I'm talking about like a racial thing, like God doesn't like these interracial relationships. So I, it's weird, I know, but this is so, so not what this passage is about. And I would just very much want to encourage you to not think that way. For example, 
This is a, John Piper wrote this little article um, a while back called, did, did Moses marry a black woman? It was just so cool. But it's a, John Piper's this old fiery dude and you should read it. It's pretty interesting. But anyway, so like he picks his story up, right? And he goes, this is how important this issue is to God. Um, Moses married a woman, Zipporah, from a region of the world south of, uh, of Ethiopia from Cush. And he's just like, imagine what somebody from a region of the world that was south of Ethiopia, like, was skin complexion, you know, hair color, and right, like an image comes to mind. And this is probably not like the blonde hair, blue eyes version of Zipporah. This is played by the Prince of Egypt. Michelle Pfeiffer, like, played that character? Okay, it doesn't matter. I'm totally um, digressing. But, but anyway, so Moses gets, and as siblings often do, Moses has an older sister who critiques his choice. Uh, Miriam, her name is an older sister because that's like what older siblings do with everything. But anyway, system, that's my baggage. But uh, <laughs> Miriam critiques this choice of, of Moses marrying Zipporah, right? Because, because I, like on these terms of like, I don't know, like, you know, she really looks different than everybody else. Okay, God's response in that, in that conversation is to not say anything, not, not condemn Moses in any way or support, not them at all. But God turns squarely at Miriam and says, something is wrong in your heart. And he goes, if Miriam, I'm paraphrasing, if you like your light skin that much, allow me to provide you with leprosy because that's really gonna lighten it up even more. Like that's, that's God's reaction to that encounter, to that like situation, conversation that was happening. So we can see when Nehemiah comes back and he sees people in, in Jerusalem starting to marry the other nations around, it's got nothing to do with the way they looked or their accent or whatever, any of that. No, no, God I didn't have an issue with that at all. Just the opposite. But no, he comes back in the issue. The issue was just a couple chapters earlier, you were swearing that you would never leave God again, that you would never disobey God again, that you would never compromise away from God again. You, you gathered together and you recalled the story of Solomon with his hundreds of wives and hundreds of other mistresses. And, and, and with each one, he compromised a part of his soul away. And he brought in this God, and he brought in that God, and then he brought in this God. And he tries to just, just appease everybody. And now he, Nehemiah comes back and he's going, you're doing it again. I walk away for like one moment and I come back and you're repeating all of the same mistakes that you have repeated again and again and again. You're carving away, you're whittling away at God's presence in your life until there will be nothing left. And he doesn't just observe something. He does something about it. In verse 25, he says that I rebuked them and called down curses on them. This is intense. Again, take a Bible home and just like check it out because he, he is so angry at this point that he has just completely, what it seems like, wasted his life on giving up this cushy thing, coming to Jerusalem, spending all this time with these people, pouring it, risking so much for these people again and again and again. And by the end of the story, it's just failure. That's how the story of Nehemiah ends. There's not victory. There's not success. One of the last lines in the story of Nehemiah is Nehemiah praying, oh God, remember me. Just remember me. 
with the subtext of, God, you know I did everything I could. You know I worked as hard as I could. You know I was as faithful as I could be. I failed, but it's in your hands now. Please, God, just remember me. And no joke, that's the Nehemiah story. Of course, we're not going to leave it there, right? (laughs) Because at the very least, it serves as a cautionary tale to all of us. So I want to make just a couple observations about the passage, about the whole Nehemiah story, in fact. The first observation that I just want to make is that faith requires constant attention. That just like so many things in your life, a good intimate relationship uh, with another person, a, 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 a meaningful job to do with integrity, uh, just like anything in life, like diet and exercise, everything in life, faith is no different. It requires constant attention. As Nehemiah shows, you can't back off even just for a moment. It requires constant attention. We've been talking about these areas of heartbreak that you have, so many of you have. These areas of, of the world or corners of the world that you just like, oh God, I think you're asking me to step in and to do something about it. And you're in this like discernment process pattern with all of that. You need to know that that requires your constant attention. It cannot be put on autopilot. It cannot be pre-programmed. It requires your heart I was doing a Bible study one time uh, with a guy who was kind of a newish uh, Christian and we're just reading through the gospels because that's like a good place to do, a good place to start, I mean. And we're reading through it and like the Pharisees come up all the time, right? And so we started talking a lot about the Pharisees and he made this interesting observation that the Pharisees, you know, they weren't such bad people as we were talking about it. They seem like really bad people all the time, but they're really just, they're really just trying to put faith on autopilot. Right? They, they wanted to be faithful so bad. They wanted to follow all God's rules so bad that they just found a way to structure their culture around doing these things so that they didn't have to wrestle with them all the time, so that they didn't have to think about them all the time. And then Jesus steps on the scene and goes like, wait, wait a second, you thought you could game the system in a way so that your heart was completely disengaged? <laughs> I've got another thing for you, right? And Jesus does what Jesus does. But the point of that is faith requires constant attention, just like no different than any other worthwhile pursuit in your life. The next one I think is even harder. The next one is that sin keeps us from experiencing God's best in our lives. What Nehemiah, when, when Nehemiah closed his eyes and he saw Jerusalem as it could be and as it should be, when Nehemiah closes, he sees Jerusalem in his mind as this, as this city where everybody is fed and everybody is employed and everybody is engaged and the city is, is flourishing and it's city work and it's just this beautiful scene. And then he opens his eyes and he looks around and he sees what it is. He sees a city marked by disobedience. He sees a city marked by wandering away from the things of God. He sees a city that's just in ruins. Maybe they have their fortifications again, so it doesn't quite look like ruins as much as it will if they continue down this road. But he opens his eyes and he sees what it is compared to what it could be or what it should be. And and the, the gap between where it is and where it could and should be, the difference is caused by disobedience. The difference is caused by sin. And I don't think the people totally got that. Because at every opportunity, when it didn't come completely make sense to them. They chose, the, they chose the way of disobedience. They chose the way of sin. And again, reading myself into the story, I just look at you know, the seasons or, or questions in my life 
when it doesn't make any sense to follow after God, like the way that I and you and we are all indoctrinated into the ways of the world, into, the, into culture, there's just, there's just some areas that I think, like it doesn't make sense to follow after God and say no to this opportunity or no thanks to that, to that question or, or to that practice or like whatever it is. It doesn't make much sense to me. And I have to remind myself that the, the way of faith for the people living in Jerusalem and here today is saying, God, I want your best in my life. And I don't always know, I don't always understand what that looks like, but God, I know that it doesn't mean disobeying you. I know that it means following after you. And so God, this isn't a question of necessarily obedience or disobedience. This is also a question of faith and trust. Then am I gonna trust you to provide for me? in a way that I might not choose to provide for myself, but, but you know better than I. And I don't want my best, God. I want your best, whatever that might look like, as challenging as that might look like to me. And sin ruins that. Disobedience ruins that. The last one is the most important one of the entire story of Nehemiah. And some of you have been around for all of these. You know exactly what we're going, getting at, where we're going with this. Because you know that in light of such a sad story, such a sad ending, we see this and it just screams out that we do not need another hero. We do not need somebody to rescue us. What we need more than rescue is resurrection. I was challenged with this earlier on in this week. I was listening to a speaker and he was talking about, he was talking about the difference between rescue, rescue and resurrection. And as he was like putting this whole thing together and I talked to him afterwards and I was like, hey, you know, but like help me out with these ideas a little bit more. You know, and I told him about myself. I told him about my heart. I told him about my church. I told him like what we're up to. And he goes, Dirk, it sounds, it sounds like you want Jesus to like be the hero who steps in and, and like saves you and saves your church. And, and, and Jesus is the guy that like comes and just makes everything better again. And I said, that sounds great. And he goes, yeah, yeah. And it's so perfect because like you don't have to change at all. Like, yeah, I mean, ideally, it wouldn't involve anything else from me. Just here you go, God. Like, you know, genie blessing, do, do something with it. He goes, no, no, no. The story of the Bible, and I'm going to put it in here, the story of Nehemiah is not one about, about a rescuer, a hero who comes in and saves us. The story of Nehemiah and the story of Bible and the story of all of us isn't one of rescue, but one of resurrection. And resurrection implies death to something. Rescue doesn't mean that anything has to change or anything has to die. Resurrection means everything has to change. It means that a part of you, a big part of me, needs to go away, needs to cut off, needs to die in order for God's new life to come living in, into my heart, into my life, into this church, into this community, into this city. The story of God isn't one of rescue. The story of God is resurrection, which means that as we together as a community come around the Nehemiah story and we start reading ourselves into it, isn't it true that like all of us, we see ourselves as Nehemiah, we, right? We see ourselves as the one who's like, I got a project, I'm gonna do all these great things. And I think what the message of Jesus for us today is you're not Nehemiah, I'm not Nehemiah. 
I'm the wayward Israelite person living in Jerusalem who chooses the wrong thing like every single time. I don't just need a Nehemiah to come and give me a boost every once in a while, every 10, 12, 70, or 150 years. I need so much more than that. I don't need just a rescue. I need a resurrection. I need a whole new life. And the question then for us, in terms of living a beyond-you life that has an impact on the world, is what is Jesus resurrecting you to? Because I don't think he's just going to leave you. I think he's going to give you that area of heartbreak where his, break, his heart breaks. And he's going to ask you to step in and he's going to ask you to make a difference. In living a beyond you, Jesus-centered kind of life, what is Jesus resurrecting you to? You know what I thought would be cool? I thought it would be cool if I just read some of the emails that I get on a regular basis. I'm not going to lie, this is the absolute best part of what I do. When people write in and they say, you can't do anything about this. I'm not asking, you know, for, you know, church to step in. I'm not just, I wanted you to know that the things that God has been teaching me and telling me over the last little while have not been lost. So I want to, I want to listen. I want you to listen to just some of the heartbreak, some of the beyond you stories, some of the ways that our community is being resurrected to something. One person wrote, my heart breaks for a small town called Sutton, about an hour northeast of Anchorage, Alaska. And also for this homestead about 60 miles north of the Arctic Circle, where once I helped to build a camp, and now they, they fly local kids in from various villages and they have their lives changed there. One person wrote, what breaks my heart is what God calls for all of his people, really in all nations, to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with him. Right now I'm spending time in prayer and even fasting to listen to God's voice. I continue to work for justice, particularly anti-racism, anti-torture in the church. My heart breaks for the kids of different racial and economic backgrounds and having access to equal resources. Another one, if, if you asked me even five months ago what my heart, uh, what my heart uh, broke, I don't think I could have even given you an honest answer. I may have mentioned something about education, nothing specific. But, but Sunday, we got the challenge and 11 faces popped into my mind. And I'm currently teaching a special education classroom with students who have moderate cognitive impairments. My, my school is made up primarily of low-income families, some of whom rely on our school to feed their children. I realized this week it's because my heart breaks and aches for God to simply do something about it that allows me to be a better teacher and a better Christian. It's because my heart breaks that I can simply hurt with students on their bad days. I can grieve with my parents, with, with parents as they come to terms with their child's disability. The, the, pain, the pain also leads me to find positive in every day. It makes every giggle, every dance party, every smile that much sweeter. Though the joy in our days helps ease the pain, the brokenness never fully goes away. And I've come to realize that's okay. Thanks for the challenge to face the brokenness in our world head on. 
And then this one, last one. I spend my mornings, I spend my mornings at a pediatric oncology center with a Sudanese refugee, her infant daughter, and her six-year-old son who has brain cancer. But as we wait for her son to undergo treatment, (laughs) right there in the hospital room, she teaches me Arabic. We don't understand each other's language, but we can understand each other's pain. My mornings at the oncology center show me the world's brokenness. I pray for those like Nehemiah, for those like me, and for those doctors around me, and to all those who rise daily to fight the brokenness in their corners of the world, we will continue our good work. Amen. I invite you to stand up. Stand up and let's pray together. As we do, though, we have to realize something. There's many people in the room I know and listening and watching online that you don't have an area of heartbreak, some area of the corner of the world that you immediately say, yes, 60 miles north of the Arctic Circle. You don't have that place, not yet. So I invite you again, as we wrap up the series, to pray, to ask God for that area of heartbreak. Ask God what in the world he would resurrect you to, to do. And in the meantime, we've invited our strategic partners, called in all kinds of favors. We got people who who are doing God's work here, near, and far. From uh, the opportunities here at Encounter Church in the lobby, from Michigan Blood saving lives, to feeding food insecure families, to our partnership with the pantry, and, and then doing God's work globally, an international relief and development organization, World Renew, out in the upper lobby. And they would just love to share their area of heartbreak with all of you so that together I hope and I pray that you friends and I together all of us that we can live a beyond you sort of life let's pray together Uh, gracious God we lift this all up before you knowing that it's only in your power that any of this could ever possibly happen Uh, God we hand this heartbreak back to you with a simple question of what might we do with it God, I want to pray especially right now for people in the room whose heart necessarily isn't breaking or they don't know what it's breaking for. And God, I ask you to soften whatever's there. Uh, Holy Spirit, you take down whatever walls might be built up. And God, you work in our lives to accomplish your will. God, you have resurrected our lives for a reason. And you're putting us back together and giving us victory and giving us hope for a reason. And today, Lord, I ask that we find out just what that reason is. God, may we never relent. May we never let up. May we chase you and pursue you and your holiness until we see your heaven being built on earth. Amen.